0: Tonight, we are returning to some things that we've um, already hit upon, and again, this is, um, I believe this is part 7 of the Old Testament Big Picture Overview. And I will, you know, the plan is eventually to give you some divided kingdom stuff too, but what happened is, in going back over this, trying to give us a framework for thinking about the covenants, the truth is, as important historically as the divided kingdom situation is, and the return from the exile um, I mean, I can kind of, you're hearing me talk about that all the time. You get the general gist of that, the broad, it's just kind of superficial gist of that. The bigger issues involved even starting to read Isaiah and understanding Isaiah as the kind of pivot point and connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament is to understand these covenants and these promises and all, a lot of this prophecy that's going on. Case in point, let's go back to, um, I mean, right now, the plan is to continue on Sundays for about the next three Sundays with that mid-50s area of Isaiah because uh, the fourth servant song leads into uh, two tailpieces and celebrations that come out of the, suffering, the work of the suffering servant about um, God's covenant of everlasting love and everlasting covenant of everlasting peace. And if you hear those things, you'll say, well, Mark, you've already been talking about some of those things a little bit in our Wednesday night Bible study. And I'll say, exactly. And over the next couple of weeks, I'll probably make some more connection points in this study than I'm able to on Sunday mornings. Because that covenant of peace language is big. You're going to hear that. You you kind of already heard that, right? An everlasting covenant of peace. What covenant are you thinking about with that? Anybody remember kind of back in early Genesis? Noah, right? Okay, so, but then that theme goes all the way through. I mean, you get it all the way through the Ezekiel passages relating to the New Covenant. So I'll talk about that in a week or two or whatever. But tonight, um, I want to get to um, picking up on something that we just talked about Sunday. So, um, as you know, for the last three Sundays, uh, we have focused on what not just I would call, but what most a lot of Old Testament theologians would call the theological pinnacle of the entire Old Testament because it pulls together so many tensions and issues and how, are, how, how is Israel going to be restored? How are we going to be saved? How are the Gentiles going to be saved? How can anyone be saved? Um, and the, uh, so Isaiah chapter 52, right, 13 through Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song in the sequence of the four in Isaiah, right? Remember, you have four servant songs, 42, opening of 42, opening of 49, the middle of 50, okay? And then the end of 52 through 53. Um, That fourth of the four, is one in which the servant is not speaking at all. It's a shift, right? Remember, God talks about the servant, and then the people are kind of like a chorus talking about the servant. And the people are saying, we despised him. We, 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 we had no idea what was going on. And the truth is, none of the rest of us would have if we were in their shoes. You know, if you're, <laughs> uh, but the, But God is telling us something. So remember now, there are five stanzas in this it's not just a theological pinnacle in a lot of ways it is the poetic pinnacle and the prophetic pinnacle of the entire old testament i mean it's just a masterpiece and remember there are five stanzas uh, running from 52 right the end of 52 through chapter 53 Now, you'll remember I mentioned this in at least one of the sermons of the last three. And, you know, we've talked about this down here in the the Old Testament study. Chapters and verses are not intrinsic to the biblical writings. They're a slap-on as a point of reference much later in medieval time. Okay, So we, you know, think of it. If you think about the Bible, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, does he ever say, now remember, in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 8. Have you ever read that in the New Testament, in the entire New Testament? No. No way. By the way, do you think Paul is sitting there saying, hold on just a minute, let me open the scroll so I can get this right? Does Paul ever even seem to be writing like that? no he's pulling it from his memory okay which is pretty impressive right but i mean in 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 paul in jesus's day jewish boys learned they memorized the scripture right they said it aloud a lot they debated about it and they sang significant portions of it you know Uh, as much as we can return to teaching our children to sing Scripture, they're going to learn a lot more. You know the way you can learn a song in like ten minutes? But if you sit there and say memorize this chapter of this book they'll never, most kids will never get it memorized, right? But if you teach them a song in ten minutes they'll know an entire chapter of something, right? Anyway, so that's a, but, but, okay, so the chapters and verses are anachronistic impositions. A lot of times people say, oh, you meant verse what or whatever, and it's, sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of paraphrasing or quoting in general. Okay, yeah, that may bridge over to that verse, but the ver- people act like the verses are canonical, holy. They're not, right? And as I said in the sermon, I think a couple times ago, maybe the first time we hit the sermon song, the, a classic example is how, right, if you understand this is probably the most important certainly one of the half dozen most important points in the entire Old Testament. How could you possibly break this thing up as the end of one chapter and another chapter? Does that make sense? Makes no sense. Somebody, whoever, whatever medieval monk or or people were doing the chapter breakdowns really missed the thing with the suffering servant, okay? So uh, remember, there's five stanzas here. And the first stanza is the one that seems to be, I guess, out of place to whoever put the chapter breakdown so it was put as the end of chapter 52 that's stanza one the first three verses okay there's five stanzas three verses each and as i said on palm sunday and i think the previous sunday too but i made a bigger deal out of this on palm sunday you have a chiasm okay with this um with this poem with this prophetic poetry okay so a off a in other words the first stanza and the fifth stanza are in play with each other, okay? Just like with the musical piece, okay? Um, the second stanza and the fourth stanza relate highly to each other. And then obviously the third stanza, uh, you know, he's pierced for our trans- That that is central, okay? It's central to the atoning substitutionary, purpose of because by that you you don't really understand what's going on as far as the substitutionary atonement until you get to the third stanza okay and then remember the fourth stanza in three verses and the verses on this are correct i mean the way they did the verses is correct Um, you've got the procession of the lamb to his execution and he doesn't open his mouth right at the beginning of the, y'all remember this right the, the fourth stanza he doesn't open his mouth okay uh, by the way in verse nine he's buried in the tomb he, he's assigned a grave with sinners but he ends up in the tomb of a rich man because why because there was no deceit in his mouth and that's the way the stanza ends. so you get this mouth mouth thing going on with the way the fourth stanza works right Remember, you got the procession, the execution, and the mystery of the burial of the servant. And the mystery of the burial of the servant, again, is that he is assigned a grave, a kever, okay? Uh, that's a Hebrew word for grave in general, right? With the, um, with the guilty. But he ends up in the bumto, um, which is like from bemot, uh, the Hebrew for. Um, a hill, and it can mean like a cave in a hill. He's assigned a cave in a hill, a tomb, okay, of the rich man. And th- th- this is again, this is a staggering to me that you know this is, this is 700 years before. That. What do you think the odds are that a prophet 700 years before this thing comes true would not only get all this other stuff right, but would be able to tell you how he's going to be buried? I mean, what do you think the odds are of that? <laughs> he's going to be assigned a grave, a caver, with the sinners, but he's going to end up in a tomb that's in a hill. It's not a, this is a very specialized terminology here. I mean, he's going to end up in a cave, a cave tomb in a hill, which is exactly what happens. Do you, do you think maybe God was inspiring Isaiah a little bit on this? What do you all think? I mean, yeah, it's like seriously. Okay, so that's the fourth stanza. But what I wanna talk about tonight, isn't that awesome? I mean, this is really cool. So, uh, and remember, he's the lamb who's taking our place. So uh, let me just highlight this. So centrally, the issue, which the New Testament repeats a number of times, is that he is the sacrifice in our place. He's the lamb of God who takes away our sin. Okay, that's the middle. That's the third stanza. And then it gets effectuated and played out in the fourth stanza. But what I want to talk about tonight are the frames of stanza 1 and stanza 5. In other words, A and off A. Okay? And so what I have here for you is A, the first stanza. I'm going to skip over the parenthetical about, like, well, this is crazy that we rejected him. Okay? But uh, verse 13 and 15. So here... Here's the beginning and the end of the first stanza of the Suffering Servant Song. God is speaking. That's why I have it in this kind of, you know, somewhere between maroon and red. Because as we all know, the Lord favors the bulldogs, right? Now, I just kind of like this. um, I don't want to confuse you all with that, seriously. I just think the red is a little bit, you know, over the top. So I kind of do you kind of a milder version of the red here. So states darn it yeah jeff so yeah florida state right okay um um yeah i think we can all agree that the lord's word should not be put in ut orange right so anyway all right so um (laughs) (laughs) yeah miles miles if you're listening you're we're good on. okay okay so you see this the reason i've got this in quotes is because the Lord is speaking. The Lord speaks several points in this song. The servant never speaks, because remember the theme of this is he is in total active obedience, but he is not speaking for himself, okay? God is speaking for the servant, and then the people are speaking against or saying like, wow, we totally didn't get this. We thought, you know. Uh, so, behold, the Lord says, my servant, Abdi, My servant, you notice the Lord is claiming the servant shall act wisely. That's sorry, that's the ESV. That the better translation is shall prosper or be successful. Okay, Um, I just slapped the ESV in here, but uh, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, so remember, you should have this by now because I have repeated this in numerous sermons. Um, This is language that elsewhere right, in Isaiah 6.1 and in 57.15 is used exclusively elsewhere for God. Only God is referred to as high and lifted up in the combination with the Vav there, with these two terms in the Hebrew in Isaiah, except for here. And all of a sudden we have God himself. This is not some big fan of the servant, okay, like some human being who's a little bit over-exuberant here. This is God himself saying, uh, the servant shall be high and lifted up. And, and by the way, he, he throws in the um, greatly, the, the word there is Mayo uh, the, greatly exalted. And remember, I kind of mentioned this briefly, but the sequencing there, why would you have an extra one thrown in, you know, high and lifted up and greatly exalted? Well, one way to read that from a Christian viewpoint. Now, this is not sitting there in the Hebrew, obvious to you, but from a Christian viewpoint, you know this takes us through right um the crucifixion the resurrection uh, the ascension to the right hand of the father the exalted there greatly exalted is and this takes me where i want to go actually uh, so because we're going to talk about jesus as the priest for us so shall he sprinkle many nations that's verse 15. now there's some dispute on how you translate that but The majority, I mean, some people want to go with an Arabic um, word there for startle, okay? But the majority view is the Hebrew is sprinkle, okay? And um, now this kind of recalls Moses sprinkling the people with the blood of the covenant, okay? And also in general, now Moses does that, but in general, when you think about sprinkling, who would you think would do sprinkling? A a priest kind of person, right? Okay, Um, Kings shall shut their mouth mouths because of him for that which has not been told him they see and that which they have not heard they understand now that's stanza one now go over to off a to stanza five yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief okay so at this point we've got god acting as the priest seemingly okay who's going to sacrifice the lamb got it but then all of a sudden we get this shift and uh, the translation here is you know a challenge but basically it says when his nephesh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his seed okay that's Zerah there now you've heard this like that Terminology a lot for me in talking about these covenants. Okay, so that's covenant language. But notice who is making the offering—the servant. Y'all see that? And his um, his soul makes an offering for the guilt. Now, who makes offering guilt offerings? Again, a priest, right? A priest. Um, so Jesus is both the sacrifice and the priest. Okay. Um, by the way, he's giving himself in death. Um, is it a sin to kill yourself? Yes. Why would it be a sin for us to kill ourselves? Did we give ourselves our life? No. No. It's a sin. Is it a sin against, um, I don't know, my best friend? Who's it a sin against? Because he's the creator. If God offers himself, is that a sin? No. Because he's the creator. Got it? Um, when When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his seed. Okay, so in other words, he's dying... And we know he don't have any children, right? I mean, you don't know that from the Suffering Servant song, but you know that he, it's basically we thought he had nothing. You know, he had no children, he had nothing, he had no future. And all of a sudden, he is going to see his seed, his children, his offspring. That doesn't make sense, right? Unless something's going to happen. Is he dead for good? Okay, does uh, does he come back to life and have like one wife and, I don't know, three or five or seven kids? you think that's what that's talking about? No, this is like a big picture thing with the sea. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Now, you remember that. Okay, you see how that's matching out with the first stanza? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. Okay, again, sorry, I just put the ESV in here. Remember, I made a big deal about this with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the other, the Septuagint, which translates from the Hebrew back. You know, two centuries before Jesus, much more accurate on this. He shall see light. In the Hebrew, it's Or, okay? Or, he shall see light. The NIV gets a little bit exuberant with that and says the light of life, I think, or something like that. But, but it, he sees light, okay? Um, which, again, what does that make you think of? Somebody who's dead who sees light, what does that make you think of in our Christian faith? Easter, right? Got it? That's why we preach that on Easter Sunday. So, um, he shall see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. So there he is as the sacrifice, again, okay? But let's go to the final verse. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Okay, that's like a king. A victorious king and then let's get to the last point but because he poured out his his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors who poured the soul out did the father do it no the servant did it he poured out his own soul in other words to death and was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors right it wasn't the father who was numbered with the transgressors it's the son or the servant who poured out his life right Um, Yet he bore the sin of many, and look at this, makes intercession for the transgressors. Who makes intercession for people? Yeah, Jesus. I know, but what kind of person? A A priest. Okay, so you see how he's not only the sacrifice, right? Third stanza, fourth stanza. He's also first stanza and it becomes very clear um, with the fifth stanza you see it right there at the end the very last little part I mean the la- don't you think the last line of a uh, hugely important and beautiful poet poetry and prophecy would be really important the last line really matters right so he's there as the priest the New Testament says he lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the father when we say he's at the right hand of the Father, like, that's like a big deal, okay? Because has anyone in here ever committed sin following your profession of faith in Jesus? Anyone in here ever committed sin? Um, has anyone in here ever been worthy enough to pray well enough to so that the Father would say, hey, yeah, you're, you're right in here in conversation with me, come on. Any, anybody in here at that level? No, probably not. So would it be really good for us, like for the eternal destination of our souls, to have somebody at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us when we goof up? What do you think? And would it be really good to have somebody who's at the right hand of the Father to say, give them wisdom and boldness so they can witness well? What do you think? Are, are we good enough now, now that we've been baptized and everything, to do it on our own? What do you all think? Okay. So Jesus... at the, What's that? Yeah, he could occupy himself with just me alone or you alone, Jane, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so isn't that cool? So he's, but, but you get this, again, it's not emphasized here, but remember, he's, he, he fulfills the three anointed offices, right? Um, so he's prophet. You get a little bit of the... King here, and you definitely get the priest here, as well as being the sacrifice. Okay? So, y'all can see how, I mean, the thing that I just referred to about the sacrifice and everything, I didn't preach on that because it's just like we, we can't spend 800 years in Isaiah, but you hear how, you see why I'm saying this is the theological pinnacle of the entire Old Testament. It really is. I mean, it's just like incredible. And, and it, it if you don't know this servant song, it's really hard to understand. It's like, well, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, but what does that mean? And how did that happen? And what was going on there? It's really helpful to know this, which is why God put it in here, okay? So um, let's move on to Jesus as the priest. Okay, now I'm going to just, I didn't do all of Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David because uh, God basically is going to punish the, you know, the bad people who oppose the sun, it, it comes harder and heavier after verse 5, but I'm just going to kind of lead into that. The key verse for us tonight is going to be verse 4. But the, remember, when we did the study of the Psalms last summer and fall, as I highlighted to us a number of times, Psalm 110, verse 1, um, is arguably the most quoted uh, passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament probably is literally the most quoted Uh, you know with Isaiah as as I've been trying to kind of as I've been studying and as I've been trying to kind of reflect a little bit Isaiah is like all over the place in the New Testament but sometimes it's not actually like literally quoted there's just these echoes of Isaiah constantly constantly running through the Gospels constantly Paul is basically a commentator on Isaiah I mean it's incredible Uh, but anyway so remember verse one is really big a Psalm of David. Jesus quotes this during Holy Week as the, as the coup de grace total defeat of his questioners uh, in the temple courts. Jesus quotes this and says, What do you say to this? And they have nothing to say to it. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, that's why that's in those all caps, y'all see that there? Yahweh, that would be, in other words, in our terms, the Father, the God of Israel, okay? Says to um, Adonai, my Lord. So you got two characters here, two persons. Is David the second person here? Now David refers to this second person as what? My boss, right? The one I say sir to. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is the right hand kind of imagery of the king. And so Jesus asked his opponents, so um, the Messiah is a son of David, right? A descendant of David. Does it make sense that David would refer to his great, 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 great grandson as Lord? Does that make sense unless the great, 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 great grandson is something well above David? And they don't have a response to that, okay? So that's the big verse that is quoted. Jesus quotes it a few days before he's crucified, okay? And basically that sets up in a lot of ways as well as his other prophetic judgment on the temple and the religious system of the Jews, uh, his execution. But uh, then you move on, verses three and four, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is Jesus as uh, as the Mashiach, King, okay. Uh, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Um, womb of the morning means like uh, before sunrise. What happens to Jesus on Easter Sunday, by the way? Yeah, before sunrise. I mean, y'all get the poetic imagery there, right? The womb of the morning. Okay. So verse four, though, this is where we want to go for tonight. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then verse five says, the Lord is at your right hand. I and mean, you're at the Lord's right hand. The Lord is at your right hand. In other words, the Lord has your back. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You do not want to be against Jesus, right, in the day of the Lord's wrath. Okay. Now, but look at verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Is the Lord speaking to David? To whom is the Lord speaking? Yeah. To his, to David's Lord, right? Okay. Okay to whoever this is, and obviously it turns out to be Jesus, okay? Um, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who has Melchizedek? We talked about him last time. So let's go back to that. Y'all remember this? Okay, we're going to go back to him. This is uh, Genesis 14 in the Abraham story. And... Um, Okay, in the Abraham story. So, remember we talked about the, God is making all these promises and these commands to Avram, right? The uh, great father, that's what his name means, Avram, okay, great father. And um, we see Avram being faithful and leaving and going the way God commands him to. And remember the three promises which with each of the two commands, okay, in 12 Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then a kind of Avram proceeding to mess up, including going to Egypt and letting Pharaoh or the king of Egypt have his wife, Sarah, Sarah eat, which was not a good thing. Um, most of the women here, I'm just guessing, if your husband gave you away to some foreign Middle Eastern potentate, you probably wouldn't be thrilled about that, would you? um (laughs) okay so anyway uh that was kind of one of his low points and he lies about you know lies about who she is and all this kind of stuff um and and we get this bad start where abraham supposedly is going to bring blessing to all the nations all the non you know but remember abraham himself is a goy right we saw that at the end of joshua remember how he worshiped idols and stuff god's just picked him out but not because, oh, well, he's been a Boy Scout and just wonderful his whole life. Maybe that's not the terminology I should use now. But anyway, he hasn't been this pristine altar boy or whatever you want to call him. Um, you know, it's not like Abraham deserved to get picked out, right? God just picked him out. And, uh, you know, we see him not breaking blessing at all to the Egyptians. I mean, they get, they get slapped by plague, you know, Pharaoh's household. <laughs> Pharaoh's like, what have you <laughs> what are you doing? and they get to leave with all this stuff. So it's the Gentiles blessing Abraham as opposed to Abraham blessing them, which is, you're supposed to, yeah, you're supposed to be amused by that. It's kind of funny. So then you get, remember Lot, who's chosen to go, you know, go to the east in the direction of the Valley of Great Fertility of the pagans in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, that's, that's the side he chooses. Remember when they have to split up cause their men are fighting over there. They've got these huge flocks. I mean, Abraham is now a really significant chieftain, like a, you know, kind of a wandering chieftain. And they both have a lot of men. Abraham's not supposed to have a lot with him in the first place, but he, he let him come with him and they both prospered a lot, including with all this stuff they got from Egypt. Okay. That the people gave to him on the way out. Get, get out of here. Here, here's some stuff. So anyway, um, you know it's a precursor for the exodus that this happens again on the exodus well anyway you know a lot ends up uh, doesn't just move in the direction of sodom what happens when you when when you know you're in your tent and you can hear all the parties at night and when your wife can see you know the country club and the garden club and the botanical gardens down there in sodom and the food smells really good you know floating up here and we're up here eating you know, um, I don't know, pita bread and some goat meat occasionally, you know, what what do you want to do? move Move down there. So Lot ends up not just moving the direction of Sodom, he ends up in Sodom. Remember this? It's really not good that he's there. Um, And he's totally in the city of man now. And uh, so anyway, um, he ends up there and when the uh, four kings from the east, who are basically like from Babylon, okay, Uh, They get mad because the five kings in the rich place, including Sodom and Gomorrah, they don't want to pay taxes and tributes anymore to them, and they kind of revolt. They stop paying. And so the four kings from the east, like the big boy kings, they come and beat the stew out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities, okay? And carry off a bunch of stuff and people, including Lot and his family. And remember we talked about how those family ties are really important. So uh, Avram, you know, gets his 318 uh, tough guys, I mean, that are in alliance with him. You don't want to mess with Avram, okay? He doesn't have his own country yet or anything, but you just don't want to mess with him and, because obviously the Lord is with him. The Lord doesn't say, look, you gift up in Egypt, I've had it off. The Lord is clearly with him. So he goes and rescues Lot and his family and like totally, you know, outmaneuvers, out-guerrilla warfare's, uh, the group of the, the 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 troops of the the king kings that are up way up north, like beyond Dan, okay, way way up way up north, and he brings everything back, and he ends up in the uh, valley of Shava, which is like outside of Jerusalem, okay, and this king, my king is righteousness, Melchizedek appears out of the blue, okay. So we have two mysteries here in the Old Testament. Let me just let me tell you, you if I said, find me where what um, what Psalm 110 verse four is quoting. Where is that? You know, where is that in Samuel or Chronicles? What do you think the answer is? You can say, I don't remember that in Samuel or Chronicles. Well, even if you read it really hard, you're not going to find it. Okay, it's, it's this, you've got all this mystery going on, and a lot of this has to do between the father talking to the son. Okay, do, are we privy to all those conversations? What do you think? Not even in the Bible, right? We get a little bit of it, okay? So anyway, <clears throat> remember who Melchizedek is, though. So, uh, so what happens is um, after his return from the defeat of Keterlaamar and the kings who were with him, Yes. The yeah. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. Now, notice you're, you're getting a later editor giving you a parenthetical there. Okay. Everybody knows the king's valley, right? No, of course we don't. But like when this is written, like, okay. So um, the king's valley. And this is outside of Jerusalem, okay. And Melchizedek, okay, uh, my king is righteousness. Zaduk, okay. Melchizedek, and he's the king of Shalem. What does Shalem mean? Peace. So he's the king of peace, and um, his king is righteousness. Or arguably can be translated, you know, basically like it's mine righteousness is mine okay who it who in the whole bible who would you think of would fit that the king of peace jesus right okay so um, this is kind of like a, this it, we, we don't know who this guy is so he appears and he brings out bread and wine now does that sound like he's a partier to you No, he's a priest, right? And and this, this is what we find out. He was priest of El Elyon, God Most High. So he's in this Jebusite, or what later is going to be a Jebusite city, Jerusalem. And he's the king of God most, he's the priest of God Most High. So is Abraham the only one in this era who knows God? Who else knows him? We know at least one other person knows him, right? Melchizedek. But we have no idea who this guy is, okay? Um, But he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's also a priest. So do you all get this? He's a king, and he's a priest. What happens in Mosaic Old Testament? Is the king a priest? Is the priest a king? No. But here, okay, in Genesis 14, this guy, Melchizedek, is a priest as well as a king. And what I'm trying to get you at is what we just looked at, right? In Isaiah 53, the close, the fifth stanza, makes it very clear that this servant is both a king who gets the victory and divides the spoils, okay? And he's also a priest who intercedes for us, okay? And gave his soul as the sacrifice for our... to to atone for us okay so um, and he blessed him in other words melchizedek blessed avram representing god most high okay and said blessed by by the way what's the promise to abraham those who bless you i will now is this guy a jew by the way let's just go back over this is this guy a jew this guy is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But he serves God most high, and he's, his king is righteousness. So in other words, I mean, the, probably the best way to read that is he works directly for Jesus, because Jesus is our righteousness, okay? If you want to like, just kind of span the whole t- Bible. Um, Blessed be of Ram by El Elyon, God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. So he's saying God most high possesses heaven and earth. Not just the God of this region or my God. is like he's the God of everything. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So did Abraham really win the victory? No, God gave it to him, right? And Avram gave him a tenth of everything. What does that remind you of? A tithe. It actually literally means a tithe, right? This is not under Mosaic Covenant. This is just what you see in Genesis. It's like faithful people to consecrate everything that God has given them, give a 10th, right? And the king of Sodom. Now, so you've got these competing kings. I talked about this last time, right? It's really kind of interesting. It's like in a movie or in a play or something like that. You've got two different people trying to get Abraham's attention. And Abraham is going to totally reject the king of Sodom. So, okay, look, okay. You got one guy who my king is righteousness. And you've got the king of the world, the king of Sodom. Can you get any more different than that? So, the, Abraham accepts the communion, so to speak, the covenant offering or, or sharing of um, Melchizedek, the bread and the wine. He doesn't say, I'm not going to take any bread and wine from you. I don't, do, you know, don't want to be obligated to anybody. He gets that this guy belongs to God. Okay? This, this, this is coming from God. He's not offending God by taking the bread and the wine from Melchizedek. Uh, now, all of a sudden, the king of Sodom said to Avram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, I want the people back, but you can keep all the stuff that you recaptured. But uh, Avram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. Um, and remember, that's just the term that we've been introduced to with Melchizedek, right? Because he's the priest of this God most high possessor of heaven and earth. It's like he's echoing Melchizedek's language. Maybe he just got a theological education from Melchizedek. Um, uh, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made of wrong rich. I will take nothing but the young men who have eaten, uh, what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Onair, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. In other words, they can, they can get some of this stuff. I'm not touching it. Okay, so that is key. Now, uh, that's what Psalm 110 is talking about. Jesus is a priest in the order of this guy, okay? And uh, we won't have time to read through this, but Hebrews chapters five, six, and seven develop this theme hugely. I mean, the writer of Hebrews spends the middle part of his entire book talking about how Jesus is, is the higher priest, not like the priest in the line of Aaron, but the priest... In the order of Melchizedek, who has no lineage, it says. The Hebrews writer says, We're not given, we don't know who this guy is. He has no lineage. He comes out of nowhere. And, um, and that he's a type for Jesus. And then, that's the, and that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, okay? And so we can approach the throne of mercy with confidence. Y'all remember this? We've set up for that in Hebrews 4. Then we get the explanation 5 through 7. And then, guess what chapter 8 is about in Hebrews? The new covenant. So you get this? This is like, in other words, this is all circling around this whole thing, and it connects directly with the bridging that Isaiah gives us. Um, so in 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul says that uh, Jesus is the seed of David. Okay, And it means both king and priest, clearly, when you start reading this. Um, maybe we can get back a little bit on this because I'm going to want to move on. But for, uh, yeah, I want—I really want to take you back to this—the fact that David, in First in Samuel, we get this prophecy about a new priesthood. Okay, and David kind of acts like a priest when he brings the ark into Jerusalem, and then David buys the threshing floor that's going to be where the temple is built. David buys it, and David consecrates it unto the Lord. Who gets to do that kind of stuff? A priest, right? So again, you get this precursor stuff going on with David pointing to Jesus. So um, all of that is to say, i got some more scripture for you here noted. But in other words, we need to rejoice in and understand Jesus as the priest. And Isaiah is picking up on that in the servant song. Got it? Okay, so you can read these other scriptures. Like I said, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is totally into this Melchizedek thing. Okay, really big time. It's a huge part of scripture. And now you know who Melchizedek is, right? And you see that David connects with this. And Abraham, so who are the two big covenant guys that God makes like everlasting covenants with in addition to Noah on the, you know, no destruction of the world thing? Abraham and David. And you see how the Melchizedek and then the David thing all point to the fact that when the Messiah comes, when the son of God comes, he's not just going to be a king, he's also going to be the ultimate priest. Got it? Okay. All right. So that's, that's good for tonight. I know choir people need to go in a minute. So any closing prayer requests before we wrap up? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. We give thanks, O oh Father, for your son Jesus. And Jesus, oh, Lord, thank you that you are at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And likewise, O Holy Spirit, you are in us and with us, and Lord, you intercede for us. And Lord, your grace is so full for us that you provide everything we need. Thank you, Jesus, for being not only our king, not only the lamb who was sacrificed for us, not only the prophet, the ultimate prophet, but also the ultimate priest, to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation. Now and forever, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys.